So we're in the Christmas season now, and typically at Redemption Hill. Uh, how many of you, this is your first Christmas here at the church? Yeah, right on, okay, good deal. New victims. Um, uh, typically at RHC, what we do is we try to designate the whole month of December uh, in response to Christmas, and so we'll typically do like a short three or four week series in December or something like that, um, Advent, whatever. And so we're kind of doing the same thing. Uh, this go around, uh, we're going to be doing a series called the Infancy Hymns. And um, so it's three weeks. I think we have another guest speaker coming, our missionary. Uh, so he'll do one week on his own thing. And then I'll do three weeks on the Infancy Hymns. Uh, and um, have you ever heard of the Infancy Hymns? Have you ever heard that title, that name? Yeah, it's not really uh, all that popular or common um, and, and what it is, the infancy hymns are three songs that are uh, composed and recorded in the first and second chapters of Luke's gospel. And uh, they would be uh, the song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, and the song of Simeon. Uh, maybe you're familiar with those passages where Zechariah kind of prophesied and where Mary sang her song and where Simeon kind of, you know, lifted the Lord up and, and Jesus was, you know, it was on his dedication day and he said some amazing things. Well, those are all actually hymns. Those are songs that those people sang as being filled with the Holy Spirit right in that moment. And uh, they're called the infancy hymns because they were composed just before the birth of Jesus or just after Jesus. Um, the Latin names for them are the Magnificat, Maybe your Bible, if you have an ESV, which is the only approved version of the Bible, um, at this church, and Dan would argue, and I like the NASB too, though, uh, but uh, if, if you have a, an ESV or a, a literal translation like that, it's likely that uh, next to the Song of Mary, there in Luke chapter 1, it's going to say the Magnificat. So that's the Latin phrase or name or title. And then you have, for the second one, you have the Benedictus, and then you have one that's kind of spelled a little weird. It's N-U-C or N-U-N-C, so it's Nunc Dimittis. The Nunc Dimittis, that would be the song of Simeon. So those are the Latin phrases. Um, but we're going to be looking at the infancy hymns. We're going to begin with uh, the song or the hymn of Mary, if you will. Um, each of the infancy hymns, each of the infancy songs, if you will, celebrates a different facet of the incarnation. Now, what is the incarnation? The incarnation is God coming to earth in a virgin, you know, the God-man, God coming to earth and being born of a virgin and becoming our savior, so to speak, or our savior. And so that's, the, that's what we celebrate every Christmas. We celebrate um, the incarnation, and each of these songs celebrates a different facet of the incarnation. Uh, for instance, the song of Mary highlights or points to or celebrates God's mercy. Uh, there's a very strong emphasis in Mary's hymn on God's mercy. And then the song of Zechariah emphasizes or celebrates God's salvation. And then the song of Simeon, uh, the Nunc Dimittis, celebrates God's light or God's revel uh, revelation. And so, each of the songs celebrates the incarnation and, and points to a different facet of it. 
Okay, and so that's kind of the way that we're going to look at them. We're going to emphasize mercy, we're going to emphasize salvation, and we're going to emphasize revelation or God's light, if you would. And if you just think about Jesus, aren't those the things that Jesus brought and secured? Mercy, salvation, and light. In fact, he's referred to as the light of the world. And so the incarnation basically points to who Jesus is and uh, and to what he came to do. Uh, so, but this morning we're going to look at the Song of Mary, the Magnificat. And uh, I'd say the Song of Mary is perhaps the most famous of the infancy hymns. It's the most well-known as compared to the others. The other ones are a little more obscure. I like what John MacArthur, who's a, a pastor that I, I like a lot, I like what he wrote about the Song of Mary. He put this, he said, the Magnificat is a song of unspeakable joy and the most magnificent psalm of worship in the New Testament. I don't think that we uh, often think of there being songs or hymns in the New Testament. We typically think of the Psalms and other places in the Old Testament, but there are actually hymns and songs in the New Testament. And MacArthur says this one is the most fabulous, fantastic one of them all. He put, it is equal of any Old Testament Psalms, and it bears a strong resemblance to Hannah's famous hymn of praise for the birth of Samuel. In fact, if you pay close attention and you know the story of Hannah, you will see a lot of parallels between what Mary sings and what Hannah sang. And he says, lastly, it is filled with messianic hope, scriptural language, and references to the Abrahamic covenant. So that's the, that's the, the infancy hymn or the infant hymn that we're going to be looking at. I think I need to build a little context before we dive in, give you a little background. We don't want to just jump into the song, uh, which is recorded here in Luke 1. We need to kind of know what led up to it. So I'm just going to summarize uh, parts of, of Luke's gospel, a little context for you. In Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, His parents were an older couple who lived in the hill country of Judea. Uh, Zechariah served as a priest at the temple, the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And Elizabeth, uh, his wife, was barren, meaning her womb was closed. That would be Old Testament language, meaning she couldn't have babies for whatever reason. She could not get pregnant. Uh, One day while Zechariah was working at the temple, he was doing his duty there, uh, the angel Gabriel who is probably one of the more popular angels that's mentioned in Scripture. Uh, The angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah and declared that his wife, now they're probably like 70 or so years old, declared that his wife Elizabeth would bear him a son, and and this son that, that she would bear would become a great and mighty prophet who would basically prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Uh, And if you read the story in detail, you know that Zechariah sort of doubted. You know, he kind of said what Sarah back in the Old Testament said. You know, but my, you know, we're like really old. I I don't see how we could have kids or anything like that. He kind of doubted the angel's proclamation or God's will. And he was made mute for a while. Uh, But for the most part, shortly after the angel Gabriel made this announcement to him, Uh, The prophecy came true, and Elizabeth conceived. 
So that's the John the Baptist component. He had to come before the Lord and just a few months before the Lord because he had to pave the way for the Lord. And so that's taking place here in Luke. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, the birth of Jesus is foretold. So that follows the birth of uh, John the Baptist. This took place six months. Not the birth of Jesus took place, but the conception took place six months after Elizabeth conceived. So John the Baptist and Jesus were just six months apart in age. Uh, The angel Gabriel, the same angel who had come to Elizabeth, came to Mary and visited her and told her that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and she would conceive and bear a son, uh, the son of the Most High, the Son of God, who would sit on the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob forever. Uh, The angel uh, Gabriel also informed her of Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. Elizabeth uh, was a relative of Mary, and the angel said that your relative is also pregnant. Gave her kind of the lowdown on what was going on on, uh, in another part of the country. And we get to Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. Uh, We read that shortly after Gabriel Gabriel came to Mary uh, and told her what was going down, Mary made haste and and traveled to the country zone of Judea, if you will. She went to the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth and shared the good news with them. And when she arrived and greeted Elizabeth, uh, the unborn John, who was in Elizabeth's womb, Uh, sort of leapt or leaped for joy at the hearing of her uh, voice. And and then what happened was, that's interesting to have a baby leap in your womb. Uh, That would be probably a little frightening. Uh, So he does a somersault in there or something like that because he hears Mary's voice. He hears Mary's testimony. And, of course, the prophet inside the womb is very excited that he gets to come before Messiah and that Messiah is basically here. And so Elizabeth begins to welcome Mary, and she literally refers to Mary as the mother of my Lord, which I just think is spectacular. She just, you know, to the mother of my Lord. That is amazing. And, and then what transpires next is that Mary sings her song, okay? She breaks out after she's greeted by Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says these things to her, greets her. She breaks out in song, and, and this song that we're going to be looking at, right, the hymn of Mary, is recorded in the text that uh, Gina just read. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. So we've got, uh, we know what we're doing now. We've got some context. And I think we ought to just dive right into the text. But let me pray before we do. Father, thank you for Christmas. But not just Christmas. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your provision and all that you've done for us, all that you continue to do. Thank you for just everything, Lord. And now we humbly ask that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth. We need to, we need to hear from you this morning, right from your word. And uh, we need to be impacted by your word so much so that we are made a little bit more like Jesus, that we are sanctified. And so uh, may this be a worshipful time for you, Lord, as we pay attention and take notes and learn and grow. And uh, may it be an edifying time for us. Just teach us as we sit at your feet, Lord. Uh, We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's look at 46 and 47. That's where we'll begin. It says, And Mary said, so now she begins to sing her song, and she begins by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. What a way to kick off a song, right? My my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Man, I'm telling you, every worship song ought to start with that. What an amazing song. beginning to a song. She began by magnifying God. And the word magnifies is translated from the Greek verb uh, megaluno. Megaluno. And what megaluno means is it means uh, to praise the greatness of. To praise the greatness of. So verse 46 could be rendered... My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord. Now what that tells us right off the bat, these are the first few lines of her song, what it tells us is that the song of Mary is a song or a hymn of praise. It's a worship song. It's a song of praise. It's a song of gratitude. It's a song of thankfulness. It's a song of praise. It is a praise song, if you will. Now, verse 46 is also an echo of Psalm 34, 2, which says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. So, what Mary's actually doing here is she knows Scripture. She's totally familiar with Scripture. And she's basically singing Scripture kind of in her own way. Now, notice in verse 47, I think this is very interesting. Notice in 47 how she referred to God as her Savior. You see that right there, don't you? And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, Catholicism has a a doctrine called Immaculate Conception. And and it has to do with with being conceived, with someone being conceived apart from original sin or its stain. In fact, immaculate actually means without stain. And Catholics rightly apply this doctrine to Jesus, okay? Because original sin was not present or passed to Jesus at his conception or birth. Jesus was conceived in sinless perfection by the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a sin nature. Uh, He was not a sinner like we are. He was immaculately conceived. In Luke 1.31, the angel Gabriel told Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So, There's the foundation for Jesus and immaculate conception, okay? To be immaculately conceived means to be conceived apart from a sinful nature. It's a supernatural endeavor. And when Catholics apply that to Jesus, they're right in doing so. The trouble is, is that Catholicism also applies the doctrine to Mary. And this is where they go way south. They claim that Mary was also conceived in sinless perfection by the Holy Spirit. In other words, that Mary was conceived in the same way that Jesus was conceived. 
According to their theology, Mary was not a sinner like you and I. She was a perfected person. And this is one of the reasons why many in the Catholic Church or Catholic faith or Catholicism exalt Mary to the level of deity and actually worship her. She think, they think of her as a god. And uh, we recently, my wife and, and family, went and attended a, a young man's Eagle Scout thing, and it was really awesome and all that, and it was held at a Catholic church. And uh, one of the things that kind of blew my mind in there, and Rachel was just like, you can't go anywhere without getting crazy over stuff. Because I was sitting in this Catholic church, and all of the statues, the largest, most glorious statues in this building were of Mary. In fact, they had Jesus bowing at her feet in one of them. And I was like, I just want to take a baseball bat to this stuff. She's like, don't do that. That would embarrass Colin's friend. You know? I I felt like Martin Luther sitting in this place without the education and brilliance. But it was just just horrifying to see this imagery. And and one of the reasons why they have this imagery and they have this this high renown and respect for Mary is because they kind of think of her as a god. And, 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 and the truth is, Mary was not immaculately conceived. She was not conceived in the same way that Jesus was conceived. She was not perfect. She was not without sin at all. And uh, yeah, you just think about it. Think of the logic of the verse that we're looking at. And this is the question that I would have for any Catholic. And of course, I would not come at Catholics in some kind of angry vile way, I would want to try to reason with them, but just looking at our verse, and I would say this, if, if Mary was perfect and sinless, immaculately conceived like the Lord Jesus, why did she call God her Savior in verse 47? Now, Jesus called God a lot, but he called him Father. He never called him his Savior. He never said, God, my Savior. He said, Father, many times. But he never called God his Savior. He didn't need a Savior. He was immaculately conceived. He called God his Father. And and he actually referred to himself or called himself Savior. Did he not in Luke 19.10 where he said he came to seek and to save that which was lost? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's like saying I'm the Savior. If Mary was without sin, why did she rejoice in God her Savior? The truth is, Mary was a sinner and she needed a Savior just like you and I. And based on her own admission in verse 46, which is in a praise song, and based upon many other scriptures that clearly Indicate that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God with the exception of Jesus Christ, immaculate conception cannot and should not be applied to Mary. should never be applied to her. It's blasphemous to do so. It's heretical. It's apostate. And it's very, very sad that such a great number of people that I know and that maybe you know believe these things about her. It is idolatry. Now, it is true that a supernatural event took place at the conception of John the Baptist. There's no doubt. These people who are old, there's no way they could have kids. And plus, she was barren. So something supernatural took place with John the Baptist. But I'll tell you what it was. 
It was the opening of Elizabeth's womb, which is something that God has done time and time again in the Old Testament. You might have had a barren person. Hannah, for instance, could not have children, and all of a sudden, God supernaturally fixes her body so she can have a baby. And that's what God worked out for uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and Hannah and others in Scripture. These people were not immaculately conceived. John the Baptist had a, uh, he had a sinful nature like we do. So we want to be careful when we think of that supernatural event or others. God has worked these miracles before. Think of Sarah who was old and who laughed and scoffed at the angel of the Lord when he told her that you're going to bear a son next year around this time. She's like, ha ha, I'm like 200 years old. Look at me. Actually, I think she was more like almost 100. Uh, But she still had Isaac, did she not? So applying immaculate conception to anyone other than Jesus is heretical. But I'm not sure that we ever, as evangelical Protestants, even use that doctrinal phrase, immaculate conception. But if we do, it belongs to Jesus and Jesus alone, darn it. Don't apply that to anyone else. It's him. He is the one who is sinless. He is the one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. No one else has ever been born like Jesus. No one. No one has ever been. No one. No one is like Jesus. No one is like Jesus. He is the second Adam. He is unique. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. So that belongs to him and to him alone. Amen? I'm going to get fired up. All right, in verses 48a through 50, Mary sang about what God had done for her. Some of the things that God had done for her. And and, and this is what's so amazing about her song. It is totally theological, it is totally doctrinal, but it is so experiential, it is so personal. Mary is reflecting upon the personal things that God has done for her. Not in a universal sense, but some of the things that he had done for her. These acts of divine grace are what fueled her praise. These things that God had done for her are the things that fueled her worship. And I see four of them here in the text. Uh, Number one, and all of them are just for me, just mind-blowing. Number one, God took notice of Mary. God took notice of Mary. Verse 48a, she says, that she sings this, for he has looked on the humble estate. I don't know if that's how it sounded. That would have been horrible. Mary Elizabeth would have shut the door. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is what she sings. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. What that means to me is that God took notice of Mary. And I think that Mary at first was a bit surprised. You know, when the angel came and told her what was going down, it was a bit surprising that the Lord had taken notice of her. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Think of the implications here. We're talking about the God of the universe. We're we're speaking of... The Creator, we're speaking of the Holy One, we're speaking of the Most High, which Nebuchadnezzar said over and over and over in Daniel. We're, we're, we're speaking of God Almighty, the one whom just whispers and the mountains shake and tumble. And uh, we're talking about the awesome, and we use the word awesome to describe pizza, which is a travesty. We're talking about the awesome, amazing God who who created all of these, everything. 
who has infinite knowledge and, and infinite power and who's omnipresent and omniscient and all of these things. We're talking about this God, the God that we study in the Bible all the time, who continuously blows our minds. We learn these tiny little baby truths about this God and we're blown away and spinning in our heads. We're talking about that God. Surely this God the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the Lord Almighty would be too holy, would be too mighty, would be too busy to notice a puny 13-year-old junior high girl like Mary. <laughs> Doesn't God have bigger fish to fry now, if he, were to, if he were to take notice of, of someone, right, anyone on earth, if he were to take notice of someone here on earth, surely that person would have to be really, really special and, and maybe really, really high up on the totem pole, right? Wrong. Have you ever read Psalm 34, verse 15? It says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. <laughs> it was, if anything at all, and, and we're talking about a sovereign God here who, who has predestined all events and all that. I don't even want to mess with his sovereignty here, but, but we've got to acknowledge that Scripture talks about the Lord looking upon the earth, looking for someone to help with his strength. And there are so many Scriptures that, that do not challenge God's sovereignty or election or predestination, but they, but they show that God does look and observe and, and respond to his people in these things. We don't want to neglect those passages. God is, he's not fatalistic. I just set everything off and I'm going to go sit on Pluto. He is active and looking and searching and evaluating and measuring people and judging. And he does these things. And I'm going to tell you, if, if it was Mary, it was something about Mary. If anything caught the Lord's attention about Mary, it was something. And it was her righteousness that grabbed his attention. Because the psalm says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. It was Mary's righteousness that captured the Lord's attention. It was her humble service, right? She said he, he has looked upon the low, uh, uh, the humility of her servant is what she said, something of that nature. It was her humble service. It was her faithfulness that caught the Lord's eye. Her age, her social status, her, her wealth, her, her influence had nothing to do with it. Nothing. I like what R.C. Sproul wrote. He put, this is the original Cinderella story. That tale of a scullery maid who captured the heart of the prince. Man, God took notice of Mary. His eyes are toward the righteous. And the verse continues to say that his face is against those who do evil. One of the things that, that they're saying about last month's election is that Democrats lost because they forgot about the little guy. One of the things that I love about the Lord 
is that he doesn't forget about the little guy. Mary, Mary is a prime example of this. It is so encouraging to know that the God of the universe, the creator, the holy one, the most high, the almighty, notices peons like us. That his eyes are on the righteous and his face is against the wicked. Knowing God, and and I would say this is something that you kind of want to write down because it is transformational. Not because I say it or came up with it, but because I think it's purely scriptural. It's totally scriptural. Knowing God is an amazing thing. For, for, For you, brother, to know God is an amazing thing. That's transformational. That's changed your life. For you to know God. For us to know God is an amazing thing. But to be known by God is even more amazing. Ephesians uh, 1, 4 through 6 says, For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. God knows you. Some of you are so lonely. You are known by God. It's very hard to hold back the tears. Just thinking of of how Look how Mary responds to that truth. She just sings and praises him. Oh, there's more. I've got more for him. Getting a little verklempt. Number two, God chose Mary out of all the women in the history of the world. Verse 48b, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. That truth that he had chosen her from all the women of the earth of all time had just sank in, and she realized that that would cause many, 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 all generations, in fact, to to call her blessed. I mean, God chose her. And and you've got to realize who Mary was, 13-year-old junior high girl. She was a nobody in her community. She had no money. She was a peasant girl. She had no power. She had no influence, no social status. She wasn't a a queen. She wasn't a princess. She wasn't a religious leader. She wasn't any of those things. She was a nobody. And yet God chose her out of all the women of the world, of all time, to be the mother of Messiah. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 28. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Boy, I think some on the other side of that would have been thinking God would never pick somebody like Mary to do such a thing. That's what the 
worldly wise would say, and I'm sure that she probably caught some backlash. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Christian, do you realize? Do you realize that you were a nobody? like Mary, but God chose you from the whole human race, from all time, to be his son or daughter and to serve his glorious purposes? You see, we have something in common with Mary. We'll never carry the Messiah, but we too have been chosen out of the entire human race elected by His sovereign grace to be His sons and daughters. What a marvelous truth. How should we respond to God's sovereign election, His sovereign grace, His sovereign love, His sovereign mercy? How should we respond? We should follow Mary's example and magnify the Lord. That's just an awesome parallel that's there. Three, God cared for Mary personally. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, I've never been a big fan of the phrase personal relationship with the Lord. Preachers use that phrase all the time today. They say, you know, if you're going to be saved... You must have a personal relationship with the Lord. And to me, it's very mainstream. It's, it's cliche. And, and I believe it can be misleading because sometimes folks hear that and they respond thinking that they can have a relationship with Jesus and they don't have to have a relationship with His church. Oh, it's just it's a personal relationship with Jesus between me and Jesus. I don't need the church. I've heard people say that. I'm like, you need the church, brother. Especially you. You need the church. I know you. You need the church. Just like I need the church. So I don't like that phrase all that much. But I would not ever deny the fact that our relationship to the Lord is very personal and intimate. Or at least it should be. Every Christian has a personal relationship with the Lord. And an intimate relationship with the Lord. Just go read the Puritans and the things that they wrote about their God and their relationship. They were so devotional, amazing guys. You have a personal relationship with the Lord, and yet you have a corporate relationship with Him too, through the church, through the body. So I would never deny that. I just don't like that phrase. And here Mary sings about her personal relationship with the Lord. About the the great things He had done for her. She even emphasized God's holiness, which tells us that she recognized the uniqueness or set-apartness, the holiness of his blessings. She was no doubt referring to her salvation here. No doubt. As well as her miraculous pregnancy. Both of those things, the salvation and, and the pregnancy, were miracles of divine grace. Things that only God can work and bestow. Those are holy gifts. Those are 
great things that were done for her that are holy and set apart that only God can do. And she was here singing about them in a sort of general way. Each Sunday, we get to come together corporately to to sing about the great things God has done for us. We get to sing about his love. We get to sing about his grace. We get to sing about his mercy. We get to sing about his salvation. We get to sing about being known by him and knowing him. We get to sing about his protection. We get to sing about his blessings. We get to do as Mary had done here. During the Christmas season, we get to follow in Mary's footsteps and sing about the incarnation, about the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, God showed Mary mercy. God showed Mary mercy. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, this is the anchor verse of Mary's song, okay? You know, if you go to a strip mall and it has a large supermarket there, that would be the anchor store of that strip mall. If that place goes out, many of the other smaller businesses will also go out because they need the traffic flow and Revenue that that store brings. And, and so in a similar way, this is kind of the anchor verse. Not saying that if we take this verse out, the whole song falls apart like some kind of a commercial endeavor. But I'm saying that it is kind of the anchor verse. It is the central verse of her song. It's imperative that we see this verse. Mary understood that God is holy. She understood that he is perfect. And she understood that his interactions with fallen mankind are based on his mercy. And every bit of anything that God has with anyone is based on his mercy. If you have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, it is based on his mercy. In fact, I read a passage last night, couldn't tell you which one it was, but it said our own regeneration, being born again, is based on his mercy. Everything essentially is based on God's mercy. If God interacts with the world that he created at all, it's based on his mercy. Uh, We might say that God's operating system, like on a computer, it's mercy. It is mercy. Mercy is foundational to his interaction with humanity. And I think that Mary was insanely thrilled that God, this God, this almighty God, had been merciful to her. I think that alone just spun her out. Why would you notice me? Why? Would you give me such a great gift to bear your son? Why Why would you show me mercy? I think Mary knew who she was, a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. She knew that her salvation was based on his mercy. She knew that her pregnancy was based on his mercy. She, she also, it says in this text here, we can see and we can pull from the text that she understood that, that God is merciful toward those who revere, respect, or fear him. Now we must ask the question, how is the incarnation, because that's what she's singing about, how is the incarnation tied to God's mercy? And I would say, how is it not? The sending of God's 
son is one of the most merciful acts in history of all time. The cross is another. And certainly the cross represents God's justice and wrath as well, but it is a grand display of his mercy. The incarnation, the the pregnancy, the, the immaculate conception and the birth of Jesus, that is a representation of his mercy. God sent Jesus as an ambassador of his mercy to live a a perfect life of righteousness, perfect obedience to the law, to do what we could never do, to do what so many of us have tried to do, only to end in despair. Because the moment that we succeed, we find ourselves breaking something else. He did what we could never do. He lived a perfect, obedient life to God's holy law, fulfilled it, satisfied God. He died on the cross to pay for our sin debt, a debt that we could never pay of infinite value, the value of the lamb, the blood of the lamb. He lives this perfect life. God sends him as an ambassador of mercy. He lives this perfect life. He dies and pays our sin debt at the cross. He's buried in a tomb and, and, and he's raised to life in three days, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. So that those who believe in him could become recipients of God's mercy. You see, at Christmas time we celebrate the birth of Jesus and and baby Jesus and mangers and farm animals around there and the wise men and and the gifts. And we, we put out these nativity sets and do all of these Wonderful things. And and that's just fine and dandy. But we should also be celebrating God's mercy. Because that is what Christmas and the incarnation is truly about. Sending his son to come and live and die and rise for us is mercy. Unparalleled mercy. Unadulterated Mercy. If God had withheld his mercy from sinful creatures like you and I, there would be no incarnation. There, there would be no birth of Jesus, no salvation, no baby Jesus, no, no Christmas. I'll tell you what there would be. Plenty of justice and wrath. Christmas is about mercy. So we should magnify and praise the Lord For his mercy this time of year. Now let's look at our last set of verses, 51 through 55. 51 through 55. And she continues to sing. I really wish I had a singing voice because I would just try to sing this to you. But it would be like, <laughs> and somebody's probably put music to this a million times, right, Dan? It's got to be out there. Listen to what she sings. She sings, he has shown strength with his arm. He 
think about that in the Old Testament, the right hand of the Lord or, or his arm of power and strength. Whenever God uses his arm, something amazing happens. Enemies are defeated. People are saved. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is how she ties together and wraps up and closes her song. Now this section demonstrates that Mary understands the history of Israel. She understands how God has exercised his mighty arm and how in the past he has scattered the proud, how he has brought down rulers, exalts the humble, filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. She understands how through the history of Israel, God has helped Israel and done so in remembrance of his mercy promised by the Abrahamic covenant. She is not just familiar with scripture. She knows covenant theology And she actually, right here in this text, sings truth and scripture. Now, she's also prophesying in a way because some of these things that are listed here in her song are things that Messiah has come to do. He he has come down to bring the mighty down from their thrones and exalt those of humble estate. He has come to fill the hungry and to satisfy them with good things. These are messianic promises here too that are buried in her song. These are things that the baby in her womb had come to do. But they're also things that God had exhibited and done in the past. Mary is insanely well versed in scripture. She knows her Old Testament. She understands the theology of the Abrahamic covenant and she knows that the baby in her womb is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. She knows it. And this is why she bursts forth in praise. This is why she's so literally blown away by the fact that she's involved in this endeavor, in this divine endeavor where heaven invades earth. She gets to be a part of it and she just sings and sings. You are fulfilling these things even through me, Lord. How wonderful. What an amazing closing set of verses here. They also show us that, that Mary was a true worshiper. That Mary worshiped in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. That's true worship. True worship only happens when, when the people of God have their minds filled with truth, so much so that through their heart and emotions they burst forth in praise and they even recite back some of that truth to God and declare what he has done for them that is true worship and I'm so bothered by how so much of today's worship music is devoid of truth and what that tells us is that so much of what's happening in churches God is actually not being worshipped people think he is because they're singing stuff that makes them feel good But there's little to no truth in these songs. 
Mary was a true worshiper. She worshiped in spirit with her heart and in truth, the truth of God in her mind. She was saturated by it. It's from the heart uh, that the mouth speaks and, and she, her heart was filled with God's truth and his covenant promises, the Abrahamic promises and all these things. She knew the word and she burst forth in praise. That is true worship. It's what we aim for here at RHC. Closing. As I said earlier, the incarnation and Christmas is about God's mercy. It's about God's mercy. God sent forth His Son to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross for our sins, to be buried and to rise from the grave in three days so that we could become recipients of His grand, glorious, divine mercy by grace through faith. If you have yet to receive the mercy of God, confess your sins to Him now. And put your faith, put your trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you become a recipient of God's mercy. You must realize that you are a sinner in need of His mercy and and realize the remedy, Jesus, the one who came, the one we celebrate at Christmas, that He came to bring the mercy of the Father and that those who put their faith by grace in Him become recipients, and not just recipients of His mercy, but sons and daughters, servants of the Most High. Do that, friend. And if you've already received God's mercy, if you are a Christian, God invites you right now to be refreshed by His mercy. It says in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. What is today? What is now? It is morning. His mercies are new. They are here for you now, Christian. You need His mercy. You know You know, I know me, you know you, you know that you've had a rough week, that you've said things that you shouldn't have said, that that you've done things that, that fell short of His holiness. You know that you need His mercy. You know that you need your feet cleansed and washed. And He invites us. Christmas is about inviting people to experience God's mercy. And he invites us to do that as well.